you know, you need to find an investment process that works for you, that you can stick to, that you can remain disciplined in. And that's kind of the key thing, you know, whether, you know, that's being a value investor or growth investor, things that you're passionate about. You know, we have products and, you know, investment teams that focus on all of those areas. But the most important thing that all of our investment teams share is that they're disciplined, they're process oriented, and they're thinking about their investment goals over the long term. Well, I'm excited to welcome into the show, Jake Shermeyer of Harbor Capital Advisors. How are we doing, brother? I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me. Depending on how the market is doing, does your mood fluctuate up and down or are you just kind of slow and steady no matter what? You know, you, you try to be slow and steady. You know, we're all human and we're imperfect, but you know, it, it's it's not great to be emotional while you're investing. Absolutely. We talk a lot about that on the show with all of our investors and, you know, wealth builders that are looking to obviously always find that edge and just stay, um, you know, ahead of what the narrative is. And I know we're going to dig into that and talk a little bit more of the, the current events. But for those that don't know who you are, what your role is at Harbor Capital Advisors and kind of your world that you play in, give us give us a little backdrop on your journey of where we find you today. Yeah, of course. Uh, so you're speaking to you from Chicago. Uh, fortunately, it's a nice sunny day here. Uh, so Harbor Capital Advisors, we're a $40 billion asset management firm that's really focused on finding and curating kind of the best portfolio management teams we can find around the globe uh, and delivering those in kind of whatever investment vehicle investors prefer. So me, I'm a portfolio manager within the multi-asset solutions team. So we do a number of different things, but mostly it's thinking about how do we kind of overlay macro understanding and then our ideas, so kind of tactically on top of these kind of best-in-class managers. So, you know, whether it's leaning into our fixed income views, our equity views, our, you know, commodity views, those sorts of things, we try to kind of bring the top down to the kind of bottoms of work a lot of our managers are doing. So talk a little bit about what what led you into this space. Did you always, you know, have a desire to go into kind of the financial market space, get in, you know, to the the world of Wall Street or... You know, what led you into Chicago, Harbor Capital Advisors, and ultimately, you know, your interest in this world of finance? Yeah, so background is more in public policy. So I spent um, several years between the Federal Reserve Bank in New York, so the New York Fed, which is the trading desk of the Federal Reserve System, as well as at the U.S. Treasury Department. So public policy, kind of the intersection of U.S. interest, macroeconomics, and financial markets to try to kind of deliver kind of the best policy solutions, largely focused on treasury markets and fixed income markets more broadly. And so that kind of naturally, you know, has a lot of focus on financial markets, what's going on in terms of macro developments, how it goes into asset market returns, and, you know, kind of led me down the finance path. So when you worked at the Fed, I think that's, those are always, you know, Somewhat for a lot of people, they feel like they're kind of closed door communities, conversations, circles. Um, is that true? And, you know, what are some of the things that you learned about the Fed that maybe the public doesn't know that might be helpful for them to better understand how, you know, the macro workings of the Fed, the Treasury, and ultimately, you know, how that impacts people's investments and finances, how can you share more insight into your experience while you were there? Yeah, I think some of the misconception is historically the Fed was not very transparent. So going back to the Greenspan Fed, you know, we didn't have post 
meeting statements. We didn't have post-meeting press conferences, transcripts, any of the things that we have today. And so the Fed really in the last 15 years or so since Bernanke onwards has really focused on being more transparent, explaining to the public, getting the public behind their understanding of how they make monetary policy. Because a lot of it is informed by expectation. So insofar as you can guide expectations to be supportive of of monetary policy goals, that kind of is a self-fulfilling prophecy in many ways. And so I think that's the misconception. A lot of people think of the Fed as the 90s Greenspan Fed, and they made a lot of inroads in becoming more transparent. But, you know, they're not really a um, user-focused design uh, industry. And so, you know, we don't always make that transparency, you know, obvious. You know, it's not always you know, the easiest topics to explain publicly. And there's obviously uncertainty about what they're doing. Um, But I think they make a very strong effort to explain themselves publicly and inform the public. Um, And in terms of kind of how it works, it's a very consensus-driven organization. You know, sometimes to a fault. You know, obviously we've, the Fed missed the large spike in inflation that we had over the past 18 months or so because there was this broad consensus that it was a transitory thing. Because, you know, they relied on their historical models, whereas, you know, on the ground probably would have told you there was more pressure building there. So I think the consensus driven nature of the organization is great in the sense that you're bringing together very diverse views, very intelligent people, you know, scattered across the country, focusing on all these different kind of narrow subjects. But that consensus can also, I think, lead to some poor decision making when you're kind of in a more dynamic environment. Maybe you need a stronger voice. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's show sponsor. Are you struggling to close deals? Cold outreach can be a slow and brutal process. And in many scenarios, it's just wasting the time of both the buyer and the seller, especially when business owners who are trying to find qualified buyers are using inaccurate and outdated data. But it doesn't have to be this way. With LinkedIn Sales Navigator, your organization can overcome these challenges by leveraging this amazing technology and platform that translates comprehensive, high-quality buyer data into real-time insights and sales. These deeper insights empower sales reps and teams to adopt the habits of top performers, which leads to much better outcomes like build and bigger pipeline with real customers leading to higher win rates and conversions, and of course, larger deals and paydays all around. We call this deep sales and LinkedIn has built the first deep sales platform with the next generation of LinkedIn sales navigator. Right now, our Millionaire Mindcast family has an amazing opportunity to try LinkedIn sales navigator and get a 60 day free trial at linkedin.com forward slash mindcast. That's linkedin.com forward slash mindcast for a 60 day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com forward slash mindcast and get started. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. What were some of the things that you learned over your time there that you feel has really helped you in better understanding how to navigate the macro picture of the markets and make informed decisions based on what the Fed is doing? Yeah, I think a lot of it is really clarifying kind of two different things. So one is the plumbing of financial markets, kind of how the banking system works, how the banking system interacts with investors. And so, you know, the stock market, um, treasury market, you know, corporate credit, kind of how that then influences the real economy and how they reflect each other. So this idea of financial conditions, understanding the moving parts, how the Fed's kind of policy levers affect 
financial conditions and then how those feed back into how the Fed thinks about the world. So I think that's one of the primary areas. And the other one is really being at the Fed, you have access to all sorts of different investor types. So from your large pension funds, your large asset managers, your hedge funds, to your state and municipalities, overseas investors. So you get a really great set of diverse viewpoints. And so you can understand that, you know, while the market may disagree with your point of view in a narrow sense, because you have a very different horizon or incentive structure or access to leverage, that's going to be very different from maybe a pension fund that's looking 12, 15, 20 years down the road has a very different incentive structure that they're trying to satisfy. And so it really gives you access to those diverse viewpoints and how they intersect in the market. Mm, makes a lot of sense. What are your thoughts on uh, Jerome Powell and how he's doing as you know the chairman of the Fed? Yeah, I think he's the right person for the moment. Um, he's you know historically has a more political background. He you know spent time at the Treasury Department, um, was kind of active in Washington when he was working for on kind of fiscal issues in kind of the late 2000s, early 2010s, and he has really deep relationships across the hill, and I think that's helped him to kind of avert some of the criticism that, you know, they rightly deserve for how high inflation got, whether it was the Fed's fault or not, inflation has been far above 2% for a while, and that harms consumers in this country, and it's a bad outcome. And so I think his deep relationships across the hill have really helped to kind of shield the Fed from some of the harshest criticism they otherwise might have expected. Um, You know, I think he brings a diverse perspective from the very academic background the previous Fed chairs had. And I think that's good because, it, you know, I think he's a good consensus builder across the organization. He can wear that academic input versus kind of the man on the street ideas that maybe some of the kind of more business oriented FOMC members are bringing to the table. Now, you, you've got a unique experience and perspective working with the Fed and the Treasury. Obviously, you noted that with Jerome Powell as well. Talk about how those two you know, organizations work together in terms of monetary policy, in terms of managing things like inflation, you know, economics from a macro perspective, and and what's the synergy there? Yes, yeah, so there's a ton of intersection in a, a wide swath of policy issues. So monetary policy is really the Fed's domain. So the Treasury kind of keeps themselves out, out of it. And on the other side, kind of dollar policy, thinking about you know, guiding the U.S. dollar as of the reserve currency, commenting on the dollar, that's the Treasury's domain. So those two areas are really kind of separate. Treasury also kind of keeps control over the fiscal policy because that's a, ultimately a political question, and the Fed tries to avoid that. But kind of leaving those aside, there's a ton of interaction on things like banking supervision. So when we had the recent bank failures, you know, the Treasury is active in terms of standing up those facilities to lend to those you know, other institutions. So the Treasury is providing the capital for the lending programs that the Fed is ultimately implementing. They're working through the Financial Stability Oversight Council with the Fed, the FDIC, the SEC, et cetera, to kind of think about policy that's fit for purpose for the financial system. Crypto markets have been another thing over the past few years that they've talked a lot about at that kind of cross-agency level. And they do a lot of international work. And so we have you know, obviously the dollar is the, the world's reserve currency and that has important, builds us important relationships geopolitically across the, the globe. And so the Fed does a lot of work in that area, but Treasury really kind of sets the agenda based on our geopolitical interests. So there's just a lot of touch points across the board, even on terrorism financing. You know, a lot of the terrorism financing, the sanctions work that the Treasury does, it works through the banking system. Who has the best eyes in the banking system? The Fed. 
And so there's a lot of information sharing on how to implement sanctions and things like that. What are your thoughts on many of the ways that the Fed and the Treasury are running? Obviously, there's, you know, proven ways of the world and how they have operated for so long. And yet there are many different components and, you know, models that are somewhat outdated and archaic. What are some of the things that just from your own personal perspective, you see being hurtful or harmful to that maybe could be adjusted or updated to create a more fluid system with the current times that we're in and where we're heading with technology, crypto, and a lot of the things that weren't around for, you know, a a lot of these organizations' tenure? Yeah, I think the two kind of salient, most recent um, things are the payment system. So crypto, you know, especially if you're thinking of stable coins, things like that, a lot of those are just kind of payments in disguise. And for, for some of the issues there is because the Fed's payment system hasn't been updated for a while. There's still kind of these embedded delays all across the financial system, you know, for stocks, for interest. You buy a stock, um, you know, today, that doesn't actually settle for T plus until T plus two, so two days from now. And so in between, there needs to be margin in the system. If you remember kind of the issues with Robinhood in um, early 2022, I believe, uh, where they had some margin issues, might have been 2021, forgive me if I forget the dates there. But those kind of financial plumbing issues, the Fed moves pretty slowly on that. And I think a lot of the innovation in digital assets and kind of real-time payments, things like that, the Fed needs to come up to speed on. And they are coming out with a real-time payments model, I think, at some point this summer. And so they are beginning to catch up. so that's one area. And I think the other one is what we learned with the failure of uh, Silicon Valley Bank recently, that thinking about bank runs and thinking about you know, financial movements across the banking system, how does that look like in a world with real-time banking? What does that look like when everyone has a banking app on their phone and can transfer funds from one bank to another? And so I don't know what the right policy answer for that is because you know, I think it's just embedded in their own ideas, our own ideas that, you know, people should have the freedom of movement for their money. And it's a really difficult policy question to solve because, you know, a lot of the information in the SVB case, sure, they were under pressure. But if we didn't have all those depositors flee in one afternoon, the bank would have been able to muddle through, you know, maybe, you know, we would have had a purchase, we would have had a cleaner kind of transaction there. But because everyone kind of fled in unison, it created a problem and the bank failed. And so I, I, I think addressing real-time payments and thinking about safety and sound, soundness in that context are going to be really difficult policy questions for them. Yeah, it is a, an interesting you know point that you bring up, right? Having a bank unravel in seven minutes or seven hours, let alone you know banks having seven days or seven weeks to work through some of those challenges, technology and, and the speed at which it travels uh, obviously creates a completely different landscape to, to work through. What are your thoughts on the challenges that, you know, regional banks are facing right now, just sticking in that vein of, you know, banks and and finance? Um, You know, what are your thoughts around, obviously, Warren Buffett's come out and said, you know, there are going to be more bank failures. But I think if you look at the data, there's been over 500 bank failures since 2010. It's not uncommon. That being said... Is there more pressure mounting in the banking system now with these 
types of challenges of technology, the speed of information in which it flows than there were in the past? And what does that concern look like for you know investors and the financial market as a whole? Let's take a quick break and hear from today's show sponsor. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk. Creators are the best office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. You can visit upliftdesk.com and use the code MINDCAST for 5% off your order. And if you sit all day long while you're at work and you've never tried a desk that can transition between sitting and standing, you got to. It'll be a complete game changer. My standing desk is by Uplift Desk. It's what I use every day to record the show, prepare the show, do all my office work. And I got to say, the transition from sitting all day to standing while I work at various times throughout the day has really made a noticeable difference for me. When I'm standing, I notice I'm way more focused and productive. I'm way more alert. And I even have a little standing treadmill under my desk now, which allows me to get some extra steps in while still plugging away on calls and getting work done. Keeps the blood flowing throughout the day, which obviously can reduce all types of different health risks repetitive strain and I've noticed that my posture has drastically improved since switching to an uplift desk as well because I'm not hunched over the computer all day and while there's a lot of options out there for you to choose from the reason I chose uplift desk is because of the quality it doesn't wobble it's completely stable it's built to last you can definitely tell based on the materials they use and they are customizable too which is really cool they let you build your custom dream desk by choosing over a hundred desktop choices and hundreds of accessories that you can build into the desk for your own perfect workspace. And you can do that by using the really fun to use desk configurator. And once you have your desk all designed and picked out, you order it, they ship it the same day, you get free shipping. They do free returns with free return shipping if something goes wrong. And the best part is they have an industry leading 15 year warranty that covers the complete desk, which was a really big deal for me. It shows that they stand behind their product for at least 15 years. So to get yours, go to upliftdesk.com and use the code MINDCAST for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com to get 5% off your entire order with the promo code MINDCAST. Yeah, so, I mean, it's a big, broad question there. So I'll try to take it in pieces. So to the kind of general story about bank failures and kind of the winnowing and the consolidation of the banking system, that's been going on for, you know, call it 100 years. If you looked in the late 80s, there was something on the order of 10,000 banks. You know, today there's somewhere on the order of 4,000. And if you look at it in terms of the concentration of assets, I think it's over 50% of the assets in the banking system are in the top 25 banks. So there's this just gigantic tale of regional banks, small banks, community banks, credit unions, et cetera. And so, you know, insofar as technology enables you to do all these things more efficiently, it also enables these businesses to be run at larger scale efficiently. And so, you know, consolidation, I think, is just a broader trend, you know, trend in the U.S. economy. You see it in other sectors as well that technology enables scale. It allows companies to get bigger more quickly and, and operate at much larger scales. And so I'd expect more consolidation. Yeah. Whether that has to happen today, in the next few months, that really is a question of if these banks continue to come under stress. So there's a very big macro problem facing all banks. That's, you know, the Fed is continuing to hike interest rates. That's likely to slow the economy. So in that environment, you'd expect credit losses to increase. And because interest rates went so high, a lot of their assets are underwater. So the securities on their books, the loans on their books. 
And that's all fine unless deposits want to leave the institution in size, which we saw at SVB, Signature, First Republic. Um, so it's hard to identify if any spe other specific banks are at risk. They're all, you know, they're all facing the same problem. You know, the extent just differs across them. You know, some institution may be more conservatively run, may have a cheaper deposit base than another institution. So they won't have to compete as hard. They have more liquidity on the balance sheet. There's a spectrum across all these variables. But, you know, it, it's going to make them more conservative. They're going to be less willing to lend. It's going to slow the economy because they know, you know, it can happen to them overnight. And that's kind of the risk for policymakers. It's an impossible thing to predict. And I think that's the thing that's probably keeping up most policymakers up at night is that they don't know which bank might be at risk. They don't know kind of what's the best way to resolve these bigger macro problems, because in many ways, it's just a function of where we are in the macroeconomic cycle, not necessarily yeah. indicative of any malfeasance on behalf of banks. Right. And maybe shed a little bit more light in, in your perspective on where are we in the macroeconomic cycle and what are the macroeconomic problems that we're still working through? Yeah, I mean, the biggest one is inflation's too high. So inflation's too high. The Fed has to keep interest rates high. When the Fed has interest rates high, that slows the economy. The economy slows, you start to see credit issues pop up. And so, you know, the stark thing about the cycle is just how extreme inflation has been as a result, interest rates have been. But we've kind of been able to muddle through. You know, the US consumer has been quite strong. Some of that was because, you know, we all stayed at home during the first parts of the pandemic. So you had savings piling up, you had nowhere to spend it. And there's kind of been this revenge spending. We've seen the savings rate go down as people are getting back outside, kind of living their life again, which is a positive in many ways. And so we've been able to muddle through, but we're kind of getting to the exhaustion point for people's ability to continue to fund that. Because you've actually seen real wages remain negative for a while. Because So inflation is really eroding our ability um, to consume things. And so combine that with high interest rates and tighter credit conditions, it's likely to make for a slowing economy and, and likely to into a recession at some point because banks are going to be more conservative because they're worried about the credit side and they're worrying about their funding side. And banks, you know, to a lesser extent here than in some foreign countries, you know, they're the marginal provider of credit to the economy. And if we don't have credit, it's hard to grow other than kind of the normal productivity cycle. Where do you see this being a soft landing hard landing. We keep hearing recession talk, right? I think people are starting to either get desensitized to that and say, ah, we've been talking about this. It's not happening. At the same time, I think you're starting to hear more and more people say, I've been hearing this over and over again, and I'm, it's actually starting to make me feel more and more uncomfortable. What's the thought around a harder soft landing and the likelihood if when another recession? Yeah. I mean, so if you think about it, any year for the last 100 years or so, you know, the chance we have a recession is somewhere between 10 to 20 percent. You know, the cycles have been getting longer over the past few decades. But, you know, in any year we can we can fall into a recession. We think the odds are closer to 50-50. So a meaningful amount higher than your typical typical year. And mm -hmm. we think that's really a function of how high interest rates have been, what we're seeing in terms of credit standards, tightening there, slowing um, kind of bank credit growth. And just kind of slow and low overall consumption. And so we think the signs are there that the economy is slowing and the Fed's intention are to keep interest rates high until inflation comes down. They're willing to risk a mild recession in favor of getting inflation down. So that's kind of our base case. 
you know, for the more severe recessions, you need to kind of identify what's that catalyst, what's that precipitating factor that can exacerbate it. And if you look at the kind of balance sheets for households, corporates, because we had interest rates so low for so long, they don't look particularly strained. So it's unlikely they're like the, going to be the exacerbating kind of factors. Maybe it's from the regional banking issues that those continue to precipitate if they you know, spread much more widely. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's a foreign shock, a geopolitical shock, something like that. But for now, we, we think inflation is coming down, probably not fast enough for the Fed to be satisfied. But, you know, hopefully by the end of the year, early next year, it's come down sufficiently that they can start to kind of weigh the trade-offs between, hey, do we keep interest rates high, continue to weigh on growth and inflation, or are we re- willing to start kind of openly debating the idea of cutting, beginning to give accommodation to the economy to kind of start growth again? Um, so that really depends on where inflation realizes over the next six months or so. But we're optimistic that'll happen, but it just likely comes with, you know, a moderate recession. The unemployment rate going to four and a half, five percent from the three and a half percent it is today. Are you interested in boosting your income by an extra fifty thousand dollars this year? If so, you're going to love what I've got in store for you. I am beyond excited to officially announce an incredible opportunity to join me in my exclusive mastermind, which will include myself and twenty-five other hand-selected investors who are actively pursuing commercial real estate in 2024 and want to be held accountable to making sure they buy their first or their next commercial real estate investment property that will net them a minimum of $50,000 a year. This mastermind group will not only teach you how to do that, how to find, how to analyze, how to structure and buy these types of commercial real estate investment properties, but you'll also have an opportunity to be a part of an intimate group of high achievers that are going to take your network and your resources to a whole nother level. But here's the catch. Like I mentioned before, this is exclusive. We're only selecting 25 ambitious individuals for our founding members group who are serious and ready to take that next step in their commercial real estate investing journey. So if you are ready to increase your passive income by at least $50,000 in the next year with commercial real estate investing, then this is your moment. These spaces are gonna fill up fast and trust me, This is the one and only time to be a founding member, which comes with some pretty special benefits. So head over to myfirst50k.com and submit your application now. Again, that's myfirst50k.com. You can head over there, check out the program, see everything that it entails, submit your application to join, and I can't wait to connect with you soon. In terms of the debt ceiling, that's been the hot topic of conversation. Yellen, you know, is saying some pretty uh, dire concerns if it doesn't get passed. You've got McCarthy and, you know, Biden noting that there is some, you know, positive uh, narrative around the discussions that have been happening this week. Sounds like, you know, ideally the the drop dead date that could be of real concerns between the you know 8th and the 12th depending on when they get things done the right has said they've signed you know the house bill the left has said what they've presented just doesn't make sense what are your thoughts say around them getting something done and overall you know your thoughts on the debt ceiling getting raised and is it really something that is getting solved in in a more macro picture yeah so i mean we're optimistic they get it done. Um, I think we should all be optimistic they get it done because yeah, it's, right. it's kind of this insane policy issue that is, 
you know, we're arguing about whether to pay past bills in order to solve problems about future spending. It's kind of this insane thing that, you know, you are, you say, you know, to your credit card company, you need to up my limits for the future or else I'm not going to pay you the bill I already owe you. It's a, it's a weird, it's basically what we're doing. It, yeah, right. A, a tortured analogy. And so I, I think there is room for agreement between the two parties. Seems like they kind of really narrowed the scope of policy issues. So it's really about how much does spending grow in the next few years? Where does it grow? So defense versus non-defense discretionary spending. And then maybe at the margin, they're going to pull back some unspent COVID funds something on the order of 90 billion. So it's kind of, we say it's reducing the deficit because it's just money we didn't spend in the past. Um, but, you know, it's unspent. So why not, you know, call it a win? We move on from there. You know, they're continuing to talk about permitting reform. You know, Republicans really want to focus on oil and gas exploration. Democrats really want to focus on clean energy transmission, those sorts of things. So both parties want something done on the permitting side. For different reasons. So we think that's an area where there's going to be some compromise in the next few months. I think the problem really is we're running out of time. So we find that Secretary Yellen, when she says, you know, June 1st, but meaning, you know, the first two weeks of June, we find that pretty credible. If you just look at Treasury's fiscal flows on average, you know, you typically have these really large outflows on the first of the month because you're paying Social Security, Medicare. VA benefits, paying overseas military. It's just kind of how, you know, payroll, things like that. There's just lumpiness, like anyone's cash flow, there's lumpiness to the federal government's cash flows. And so because cash is so low, we're currently at about 70 billion or so, combined with these extraordinary measures, these accounting gimmicks Treasury can use, there's not a lot of room left. And we know on June 1st, there's gonna be a lot of outflows. So maybe the actual date Treasury runs out of money isn't June 1st. But it's, you know, small forecast errors if it's June 3rd, June 5th, June 8th. Like we find that that window of time very credible. And so from the negotiation standpoint, there's not a lot of legislative days left. You know, we're speaking on a Wednesday here. They only have one more day before the Memorial Day weekend where the House is in session. And so what you likely have to see, given how long it takes to create a bill, mark it up, you know, move it through both chambers of Congress, that takes a few days. And so at this point, they're probably going to have to do a short-term extension if they think the negotiations are going such that they'll have kind of a broader deal going forward because we're running out of dates. You know, there's yeah. June 1st is a week from tomorrow. What if we don't get it done? Yeah, that's the unknown. Um, so everyone, it's funny. It's, you know, it's a really interesting kind of political dynamic in the sense that Treasury has every incentive to say the world's going to end. I think they're probably the closest to the truth. Uh, Republicans have every incentive to say, well, it's not that big of a deal if it comes to it. Um, I don't think that's their main kind of statement or negotiating position. But you want to stake out somewhere between those two. And it's hard to say where exactly the truth lies. But we think the consequences would be pretty grave. You know, the S&P already downgraded the Treasury in 2011, the last time this really became a large concern for the markets. Fitch, the other one of the other three big rating agencies, has talked about if this continues. They may put us on ratings downgrade. They may downgrade us. Moody's has said similar things about the likely effects. And so, you know, you may get a deck downgrade. That debt downgrade passes through the entire U.S. economy. Banks get downgraded. High-grade corporates get downgraded. High-yield companies get downgraded. 
And that's before you start thinking about the difficulties where Treasury is actually prioritizing who to pay. Mm-hmm. So you're immediately seeing a cessation in some social security payments, veterans payments, all of those things we were talking about, those fiscal flows, they stop overnight because Treasury is probably prioritizing to pay debt holders. And the reason for that is, one, it's to avoid the kind of medium-term consequences of a default and what it does to the U.S.'s credit rating going forward. And then two, it's a political choice. Treasury pays the debt holders, so they don't have to make the choice of who do you pay first, Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, veterans. That's an impossible political choice for non-political entities like the Treasury Department. Right. So their choice is going to be, let's pay the debt. And then every politician overnight is going to be inundated with calls from their constituents because everyone has a veteran, everyone has a Social Security recipient, Medicare recipient. So you make the politics kind of bounce back on the politicians. So what is your outlook with all of these somewhat big narratives around big issues, the underlying, you know, whispers that have continued to ripple through, you know, conversations is the strength of the U.S. dollar and the strength of the U.S. dollar remaining the reserve currency long term. We know that obviously it would take a very long time to unwind that. And yet it sounds like more and more of those conversations are being explored right now. What are your thoughts around that narrative and the likelihood, if ever, the U.S. dollar, um, you know, falls off as the reserve currency of the world? Yeah, I mean, our dysfunction doesn't help the conversation. It's it's clearly been a talking point lately, but there's just very little evidence of any kind of widespread switch away from the dollar. One, because there's not really a plausible alternative. You know, yeah. everyone talks about the Chinese renminbi, but the problem is it's not freely convertible. You can't actually go to China, get, you know, tens of billions of dollars in renminbi, you know, in dollar equivalents, and then kind of move that cross border. You know, there are limits, there are capital controls on what you can do. And so to be a reserve currency, you need to be freely convertible. In Europe, you know, we've done that story before. That was kind of the 2000s into the financial crisis. And then we saw all the debt issues with, you know, the Spains, the, the Greeces of the world. And so, you know, I think the euro continues to be a robust kind of second to the dollar, but it just doesn't seem likely that it's going to be a plausible alternative because so much of the world is still denominated in dollars. You know, trade is invoiced in dollars. Um, we have the treasury market, which is the deepest, most liquid market in the world. So people can park their dollars in a safe asset. Obviously, defaulting on those would put that at risk. Yeah. So that is that is a concern. Um, but if you look at kind of the small changes away from the dollar, it's really been those countries who are our geopolitical foes. So it's Russia who had their treasuries frozen, who are switching into gold or going to you know China and investing there or denominating and invoicing in the renminbi. It's China who's kind of diversifying because obviously we're in strategic competition. Um, but for the vast majority of our trading partners and kind of our allies, the dollar remains the, the only game in town. So with all that taken into account, you guys obviously have, you know, 43 billion plus assets under management. What's the short-term defense with the risks you see out on the horizon? And also, what is the maybe short-term or near-term or long-term offense you guys see as an opportunity coming out of all of this? Yeah, so short-term in in our macro, in our multi-asset portfolios, um, kind of the top-down view is 
you know, we think a recession is likely. We think given the challenges to growth over the next six to 12 months, combined with valuations that aren't incredibly, you know, compelling, if you look at the S&P, just look at, you know, a simple PE or cyclically adjusted PE, we just don't think there are compelling valuations there. And a lot of the stock market run-up we've seen year to date has really just been a few beneficiaries, NVIDIA, uh, Microsoft, things like that. It's really been right. a tech-driven and very narrow run-up year to date. And we think that's reflective of that the underlying economy is slowing, you know, growth is below trend, and kind of there is a meaningful risk of a recession. So that leaves us underweight risk in our multi-asset portfolios. So you know, relative to whatever your benchmark equity allocation is, we're underweight that, we're overweight fixed income. We think Because we think, you know, this is once in a decade attractive yields, especially for kind of those higher quality products, you know, your investment grade, corporate credit, your agency mortgage-backed securities, you know, treasuries as well. You know, if you can get a bill rate yielding five and a half percent, that's pretty attractive today when, you know, you're looking at an earnings yield on the S&P far below that. And so we just think from a valuation perspective and our cyclical view that fixed income is more attractive than um, equities at this point. Kind of the medium to longer term view is, you know, I, I think the debt ceiling is a case in point for this is that, you know, stay invested, focus yep. on your medium to long term goals. You know, there is a lot of noise in financial markets. There's far more volatility than there is kind of fundamental changes. And so, you know, you need to find an investment process that works for you, that you can stick to, that you can remain disciplined in. And that's kind of the key thing, you know, whether, you know, that's being a value investor or growth investor, things that you're passionate about. You know, we have products and, you know, investment teams that focus on all of those areas. But the most important thing that all of our investment teams share is that they're disciplined, they're process oriented, and they're thinking about their investment goals over the long term. Yep. Critical, right? Stay, like you said, stay invested no matter how high the market sounds, how low the market sounds, how, you know, dire or, or um, sexy it sounds. You just got to keep the emotion out of it, have your plan consistently, you know, over an extended period of time, execute on that plan. And I'm curious, you know, for you personally, I know obviously you work with many different investors and organizations of, you know, different sizes, but for you individually, what is your, kind of investment focus and discipline look like uh, as an investor yourself? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, it's, I really focus on my horizon. You know, I'm in my thirties. And so, you know, hopefully, you know, I stay employed for a while. I can, you know, meet <laughs> my bills day to day, things like that. And so I'm thinking about what does my investment portfolio look like 20, 25, 30 years from now. And so I'm really thinking over that horizon. If you look, and when you start to look over that horizon, the volatility of stocks is actually quite comparable to fixed income when you take 20, 30-year holding period returns. And on average, they deliver much higher returns. So for my own investment portfolio, you know, I'm largely focused on a you know, broad-based, balanced equity portfolio because I have a 25 to 30-year horizon and right. I can look through the month-to-month, the quarter-to-quarter, the year-to-year fluctuations. I love it. Any real estate in your portfolio? Just the home that I live in. Just the home that you live in. What are, and what are, you know, I always like to, to talk because I'm a real estate guy, but I've got, you know, a, a decent allocation now in my portfolio and, you know, different insurance and um, equity products. That being said, um, I always love getting, you know, the perspective on is, is your portfolio heavily invested in the markets just because that's your basket that you're watching like a hawk or 
do you feel differently about real estate investing? What are you, what's your what's your take on real estate investments as a holistic approach to your portfolio long term? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it's focusing on real estate for the kind of benefits that are accrued to it. So at this point, I live here, and so you know, focus on the home that you want to live in. Focus on kind of a home you want to live in in the medium term, and then kind of what are you trying to optimize? The amount of leverage you can get through you know a mortgage and kind of minimizing your interest costs. And making it something, you know, you don't want to be house poor. So what yep. can you live in? What can you afford? What do you enjoy living in? And kind of make sure you're accruing those benefits. And kind of the medium term, though, I'm optimistic about the U.S. housing market generally because we've been undersupplied for the decade after the financial crisis. You know, it's something that people have speculated. Maybe we see some of that in tech, given all the, the layoffs of the past two years. But you lost so many contractors, construction workers, land developers. All of the infrastructure that surrounded the housing boom in 2005, 2006, 2007, you had a permanent kind of cut to the supply of that infrastructure. And since kind of 2008, 2009, and I think there's also the memory parts of it. A lot of people were burned in that period. A lot of people lost a lot of money. A lot of businesses, you know, went out of business. Um, And so in that environment, we've had this chronic undersupply of housing in this country over the past 15 years. And I think we're seeing more discipline from those home builders, from people in the industry. They're more conservative. You know, lending is clearly more conservative on the mortgage side. Mm-hmm. And so I think if you, you know, continue to see the U.S. population growing, you know, we're not getting more land. People still like to live in cities. They still like to live in concentrated areas. You know, some of that switched to the suburbs coming out of COVID. You know, I, I live in a city, so I'm biased here. And I think cities will continue to prosper. But I just think, you know, real estate will continue to deliver positive returns because there's that chronic undersupply. And so long as you're kind of focused on a medium term horizon, you enjoy living in it. I, I, you know, I, I see no reason not to continue to engage in the housing market. I love it. Well, we've appreciated you sharing your insights and your experience today. And I know some people are going to want to know more about Harbor Capital Advisors. They're going to want to know more about you. What's the best place for them to do that? Yeah, we'll uh, drop it with you. You can drop it in the episode um, description, but you know, harborcapital.com. Um, It's a great way to look at us, look at our products, look at our insights, and learn more about the firm. Jake, thanks for coming on the show today, brother. All right. Thanks so much, Matt. Well, that wraps up this week's episode. Hopefully, you guys enjoyed that interview. And if you did, all I ask is that you take two minutes and leave a review in iTunes, where by doing so, you're also going to get entered in to win a $100 gift card. Don't forget to share this episode out with somebody else that may need to hear it or may get some value from what was talked about in today's interview. And for those of you who are really looking to accelerate your wealth building journey, you want to unlock more financial freedom, you want to get more time back, or maybe you just want to level up your life, your business, your finances, be sure to head over to MillionaireMindcast.com and check out all the amazing products and resources that we have for our Millionaire Mindcast family, whether that's one-on-one coaching with me, mastermind events, downloads and checklists, the Rich Life Planner for those of you looking to take your goal setting and productivity to the next level. We've got all kinds of great, valuable tools. So be sure to check those out at MillionaireMindcast.com. And last but not least, if you're not on my weekly text letter and you want to be the first to know of exclusive updates and offers in addition to behind-the-scenes access to a lot of the stuff that I'm doing, that I'm investing in, be sure to join by texting the word NOTES to 844-447-1555. With that being said, thanks for listening today. Until next time, keep investing in yourself and your wealth on your march to a million and beyond. Cheers, my friends.